Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to CSIS. I'm Steve Morrison. I'm Senior Vice President here, and I direct our Global Health Policy Center, and we're thrilled to be here today for Gavi at 20. We have a, a terrific lineup of speakers. I'm going to introduce uh, momentarily uh, Seth Berkeley, the CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance. Um, I first want to thank uh, two colleagues, Michaela Simonon, uh, who uh, uh, put the program together very carefully over many weeks, and my colleague Catherine Bliss, whom we'll hear from uh, on the panel uh, that follows uh, Seth's uh, presentation. Um, this is a big year of replenishment in June in London. We'll hear something about that. Uh, it's the second successful, what will be successful, second replenishment in Seth's tenure, which dates back as CEO, which dates back to 2013. And in that period, when you reflect on what's happened at Gavi um, during his tenure, it's really quite remarkable. Um, the amount of leadership and achievements and change that we've seen over the course of this period. We've seen a, 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 a continuous uh, process of, of reworking and improving the transition policy. We've seen um, movement of the institution into a much more concentrated discussion around its role in, in advancing health security, in promoting stockpiles, in advancing uh, HPV vaccine, um, and, um, and, and looking at immunization across the entire lifespan. Uh, the, the institution is, is, has been graded at various points with very high marks in terms of gender equity, uh, transparency and accountability, its ability to shape markets effectively in order to bring prices to within uh, affordable levels, but also to expand the pool of producers which is it makes more than tripled in, in, the, in the course of Seth's tenure. The relationship with the United States remains very strong. Um, congratulations that last week the administration, I believe it was on the 10th of this month, announced a pledge of $1.16 billion for the three-year period, FY20 through 23. That comes out to $290 million per year. That's a significant increase if you look back over the, uh, over the earlier years. Uh, and a sign of the, uh, of the high, high regard and, and, and strength of reputation across political uh, landscape uh, for, for Gavi and the work that it does. Um, it's become a very strong partner, in, in, in a much stronger partner uh, with others within the global health universe. It moved on to the campus in Geneva. We see very strong alignment with the Global Fund, with Unitaid, with the, uh, the GPEI, the Global Polio Eradication Initiative. Um, these are just the, the high, high marks, and uh, uh, we um, are delighted that Seth has chosen to take some time out of a very uh, frenetic schedule to come and be with us this afternoon to help kick this off. So I'm going to invite Seth to come forward and do his presentation. Please join me in welcoming him. Uh, 
So thank you, Steve, for that lovely introduction. And thank you all for coming to hear this presentation. Um, I um, um, will, um, Steve and I were together at the Munich Security Conference just a week ago where we had a chance to discuss some of the things we're talking about today, which is becoming even more relevant given the news that we have in front of us. So I'll try to touch on that and I suspect we'll have a chance to talk about it later on the, at the panel. So um, you've heard that um, Gavi is 20 years old, and um, um, this uh, picture on the top is the original panel at Davos. You see a much younger Bill Gates. You see different leaders in the uh, multilateral institutions there. And you know the question when it started was, is this going to succeed? There had been a children's vaccine initiative, which frankly failed miserably before this. And so it was an experiment. And I think we have to agree that it was a very successful experiment. So since Gavi began, we've immunized more than 760 million additional children. But a number that people don't know is close to a billion additional children have been reached by campaigns. We've supported 50 to 60 percent of the global birth cohort, prevented more than 13 million deaths, big economic benefits, and we've expanded the vaccines now to cover a whole range of diseases. So I think we can see that this public-private partnership actually is working. But more importantly than the numbers of process indicators, in, in development, of course, we use child mortality as one of the key indicators. And we can see during this period, um, this is till 2017, if you carry this out until now, a 50% reduction in child mortality. Really extraordinary. If you ask the question, what components of that are vaccines, you can see a 70% reduction in vaccine-preventable disease mortality. So we not only know that we can get the vaccines out, but that this really works. Um, so if we look at this over a timeline, what you can see is the improvements that have occurred in being able to reach people. On the top of this graph, you see the birth cohort growing. It's growing somewhat slowly because we're talking about um, a more global number. If we look at Africa, a 40% increase over this period. You can see the number immunized. We've gone up 22 percentage points for DPT3. The reason we use that as an indicator is because having a third dose means that a health system is working to deliver one, two, and three doses. You look at the number of under-immunized, you can see those numbers going down. And then you see on the bottom, zero dose. This is children who have not had any contact with the routine immunization system. Um, this is going to become a much more important indicator for us going forward, and I'll come back to it. So, why was Gavi set up originally? Well, the idea was an equity agenda. There were new and powerful vaccines that were being made available, but they weren't reaching the people who needed them the most. Here on the left, you see in green hepatitis B. This is not only a, a virus, but it's also the main cause of liver cancer. And so um, you can see in high-income countries, not in developing countries, the blue is Haemophilus influenza type B. You can see where we are today. More developing countries have access to these vaccines than developed countries. This is a dramatic change in equity. In fact, one of the challenges now is the poorest countries have such good access. The rich countries have access. Sometimes those in the middle do not. And it's something we as an alliance are discussing what role we might play in trying to improve that. 
So where have we been? So we started out, um, Gavi, with 77 countries before we got formal uh, programs about sustainability. You can see China's the big one that's in here. China was specific around hepatitis B, where they had 365,000 deaths a year from liver cancer because they had about 10% of the population infected, and we were able to show that you could get vaccines out to the population, and today less than 1% are infected, and those deaths are going away. So we started with 77. We then went down with a formal policy of transition down to 72. This is where the 60% of the global birth cohort comes from. Um, we've had 15 countries transition out of Gavi. I'll show how that works in a second. Um, um, and um, we um, did have, um, um, so we have 57 countries now that are, are Gavi eligible that are left behind. And um, I, I show Syria here because it was the only time Gavi ever included a country that was not included for economic reasons. It was included because of the situation there. And tragically, two years after it was included for um, the fragility reasons, it became Gavi eligible because of the economic disaster of the years of warfare. So 57 countries plus Syria. Here's the um, eligibility policy, and the way it works, it's a pure economic policy. So if you are above $1,630, you are no more Gavi eligible. If you're below that, you are Gavi eligible. So we don't choose countries based upon a, a politics. We do it purely based upon economics. And we start off with the poorest countries paying just a little bit, 20 cents a dose. As they move into the preparatory transition, they increase their expenditure 15% a year until they cross that threshold, and then they have five years to take on the full cost of their vaccines. Um, our, our pharmaceutical partners have made sure that there's no shock after this. They've um, allowed uh, countries to keep at Gavi prices for five or 10 years afterwards. And now we're at the process of having had graduates for a while that we're looking on how do we make sure that there is a smooth landing for countries. But the good news is the 15 countries that have transitioned are all continuing to finance their vaccines, and we expect at least 10 more um, countries to be transitioning during this next period. Now, what does this mean? This means that countries are putting more and more of their finances on cost-effective interventions like vaccines. You can see here the co-financing that is going up over time. Dramatic increase now, 36% um, uh, percent of the of, of the uh, financing is going to this and the next period it's going to go even higher than that um, so the thing that's about um, vaccines that um, I like to tell people is a little dirty secret, which of course vaccines are great tools, but they don't deliver themselves. So what we need to do is figure out how to make sure that we have vaccines available. And one of the things we do is we try to innovate in making vaccines available. We do that often working with the private sector. Here's our examples of some of the innovations that have been done. Everything from uh, better vaccines like thermostable vaccines, drone deliveries, remote temperature monitoring, um, ecological solar-powered cold chains, um, uh, digital health records. So this is a process to try to bring private sector into the effort to deliver these vaccines better, which is going to be absolutely critical as we move into the next phase of leave no one behind. Um, 
we, we've already heard from Steve that we're doing more on outbreaks. This has been an evolution of Gavi. Um, so far, one, more than 1.3 billion people have been protected against the outbreak in uh, preventable diseases. Um, but there are still big gaps. You can see here second dose of measles um, and yellow fever vaccine. Um, and, and what we have to do is make sure that we get these vaccines out ahead of time and not just wait to outbreaks. Um, I think measles is an example of a disease that it's a cheap vaccine. It's been around more than 50 years. We know there's a global resurgence now of measles. There are issues around vaccine hesitancy in the West, but we're also seeing problems in the South with fragile countries, with countries that have disturbances. If you look at DRC, more people have died in DRC of measles than have died of Ebola so far. Um, and, and it's an example of why we have to make sure that we're paying attention to the routine systems. And tragically, in Europe, 47 of 53 countries now have measles. And for a, a vaccine that is this effective and this cheap, this is something that the world has to pay attention to. So going back to the global health security, um, we manage uh, to finance the stockpiles that are used globally. So for yellow fever, meningitis, cholera, and now Ebola vaccine. And we've had now a pretty good track record. More than 140 million people have been protected with more than 170 million doses since we started this program. And we've become much more systematic in doing this, working with um, UNICEF, our procurement, the, the, the supply division, which does the procurement of vaccines, we've worked to make sure there is adequate supply of vaccines in case of emergencies. Um, I think, in fact, the Ebola situation is the alliance operating at its best. Um, uh, when the West African outbreak occurred, people realized there was everybody piling in with new technologies when we thought it was a global outbreak, but who was going to pay for this? How could companies scale it up and sustain it? So the board made a decision because we had innovative financing mechanisms, we could do this. And um, we announced that we would put up to $390 million available to create a marketplace for Ebola vaccines and to distribute those. We did an advanced purchase commitment for any company. Merck stepped forward. We announced that at, at, at Davos. Part of that agreement was both to make sure that the regulatory um, systems were moved forward, that Merck would submit an application to the WHO, but also they would move forward to regulatory approval, but as important that they would keep 300,000 doses available just in case there was another outbreak in the interim period before there was a licensed product. And thank goodness for that, because there have been three outbreaks, as you know, um, two of which were rapidly controlled, and of course the North Kivu outbreak, which the vaccine has been remarkable. We vaccinated um, more than 280,000 people in that and has really kept it at bay, kept it from spinning out of control. But of course, the challenges in governance there has meant the epidemic has continued. Today, we have a licensed product um, and um, we also have a license not only in the West, the EMA and FDA, but also now four African countries have licensed it. It's now pre-qualified and we're working with Merck to create a half a million dose um, global stockpiles so that hopefully this will not be a problem again in the future.
Um, Steve mentioned the importance of working on polio. Um, we have been working with the polio group for a long time, but where we really stepped up was when they decided to introduce inactivated polio vaccine. That was the most rapid scale-up of a vaccine that was ever done in history. We tried to do it in more than 70 countries over the course of about a year and a half. Um, um, that has now um, occurred. Um, it was independently financed in the past, um, but um, uh, the last two years, um, uh, the Gavi board agreed to step up and pay for it, given the outbreaks that are occurring in the regular program to free up some funds. And um, assuming that we have a successful replenishment, the Gavi board has agreed to pay for IPV. And one of the reasons this is important is to try to lift up the routine coverage, but also to move from a five-in-one pentavalent vaccine to a six-in-one hexavalent vaccine. Those are expected to be ready sometime during this next period. And it would be, again, the alliance to move forward to a, a better product. Um, this looks at pricing, which is an important issue. Um, because we purchase vaccines for 60% of the world's population, what that means is that we are able to negotiate uh, better prices, and that's very important to shift the mindset from low volume, high cost, to high volume, lower cost. And this has been true not just for uh, um, uh, industrial country manufacturers, but as Steve mentioned, we've brought a lot of new manufacturers. We've gone from five to 17 manufacturers um, during this period. And what that has meant is that we have a healthy vaccine market. And you can see today, um, they're not exactly an apple to apple comparison. So we don't use the exact same uh, vaccines in the US, but approximate US price around $1,100 for the um, vaccines that WHO recommends. And you can see the Gavi price being $20. $27 to give you an idea of the power of market shaping. And that's critical if countries are going to pay for the vaccines themselves. Okay, that's a little introduction. Let me talk about where we're pivoting to now in Gavi 5.0. So this is our new um, uh, strategy goals. And you can see on the top, leaving no one behind with immunization. This is really the, the, the kind of big change that's occurring because um, you'll see in a second, but um, at one point when Gavi started, you know, a little bit more than half of the world's kids were getting vaccines, but today we're up to 90% um, receive at least one dose of a routine vaccine. So how do we pivot to a different uh, program? And there's a lot of things that are affecting us right now. We have population growth and urbanization. Um, we're going to see an increase by 2050 of 2.3 billion people, of which 70% of the global population is going to be in urban settings. We're seeing the largest number of displaced people in history, and most of which are in developing countries. And we're seeing dramatic effects from climate change and shifts, which are causing ecological disasters, but also movements of people, which also affect the way they are. So these are more macro things, but they affect the strategies we have to take. Now, going to this concept of zero dose I said I'd come back to, you know, this is a really important concept. So if you look at where we were when Gavi started in 2000, there were close to 30 million under-immunized kids. We've reduced that by about half. Um, you can see to 15 million. But if you ask the question, who has not had any contact with routine immunization, that's gone from 18.9 million down to 10.4 million. That 10.4 million so-called zero-dose children 
are the critical priority we're pivoting towards in this next period. Now, why are we focused on them? First of all, from an equity point of view, two-thirds of those children, those families, are below the poverty line. So from an equity point of view, this is critical. They're often today, not just in the Tuchel that's in an isolated or a rural area, but rather in urban slums, in refugee camps, in, in people moving because of climate change. So that's why we have to change our strategies. If you reach these zero-dose children, they are the families that have no access to any health interventions. If you're missing vaccines, you're missing everything. So this becomes the platform for primary health care or for universal health coverage as you move forward. Um, finally, um, we need to think of this as a global health security. So we're lucky coronavirus occurred in China, where they have a you know, good public health system. I and mean, you can make critiques if you want about some aspects, but China was able to jump on it quickly. They had the tools. They were able to work on it. That wasn't true in 2014 when Ebola appeared in West Africa. It occurred on the border of Guinea, where there was no health system, and for three months, we were unable to know it was Ebola. That's why it spread so widely and why it turned into such an explosive epidemic. If we want the world to be safe, we have to have no communities that are left out. So we have to think of this not just as a development issue or an equity issue, but as a global health security issue. The other thing is, of course, if you get sick when you're in one of those communities, because you don't have any health interventions, you're more likely to have side effects or die or have that disease spread among you. So for all those reasons, a zero dose are a good priority. Where are they? 75% of them are in 13 large and fragile countries. So we're going to get very granular. We're going to come up with a metric on reaching zero dose children. We're going to try to tick away at that. But we're also going to have a metric on how those zero-dose children get incorporated into a health system. And that's really going to be the critical metric, because what we'd like to do is build a resilient health system for everybody. So what do we have to do to do this? So first of all, we have to be much more differentiated and targeted. We have to go subnational to try to look. There's a reason why communities are being reached. Where are they? How do we reach them? We have to have tailored responses, and we particularly have to pay attention to gender issues, because many of the barriers have a gender component in that. We have to focus on demand. It's not just the supply side. On the demand side, we'll have to deal with some of the hesitancy issues that are beginning to spread. And we have to think about this not just in the traditional alliance that has worked so well of WHO, UNICEF, the World Bank, the Gates Foundation, but how do we bring others into this? For example, the humanitarian players that traditionally haven't been involved but may have a specific role to play here. How do we take advantage of what polio has learned, et cetera, et cetera? And, and lastly, um, we've changed in vaccination. It used to be just about kids. Lincoln Chen years ago said, you know, public health is like a sinking ship, women and children, and, you know, and everybody else comes last. Well, of course, that's not true now. And what we're trying to do is build a life course platform um, across um, all of the um, different um, vaccines. And this is going to be important, again, for all of the concepts that we've talked about. Um, and you can see here some of the advantages of working across a platform. So where you can work with different groups and, and with other interventions to try to have integrated approaches. 
Um, just to say that um, this is a particularly good place to do it because we have uh, more than half a billion contact points with the health system each year as part of immunization. So in terms of, again, going to scale, this is a great way to look at it. So let me finish now talking a little bit about the replenishment and the resource needs. So in Berlin, um, we ended up asking for $7.5 billion. We agreed that this replenishment would be less than that. Um, we also ended up, though, absorbing um, the big ask on polio. So we've squeezed our health systems funding more than we'd like. The board has gone and then said we're looking for at least $7.4 billion. Um, and so we see that as 7.4 as a minimum for being able to do this. If we have more finance, we can use that for the equity zero dose um, and differentiated um, approach to HSS agenda. Um, what's interesting about the finances is that you begin to see the changes that have occurred with countries self-financing. Here's the resource share, 71% donor financed in 16 to 20, now 54%. Um, I'll show a slide about the, the market shaping savings in a second. And here's what that looks like. In, in 11 to 15, we had 8% of the funding coming from countries. In 16 to 20, 23%. 21 to 25, it's going to be a full 41%. That number, which is um, $3.6 billion, um, if you add in the cost of, of, of paying for the health systems, which is another $6 billion, that means that the poorest developing countries are investing close to $10 billion in their immunization systems, which of course is the most cost-effective intervention you can have for health. Um, I've already talked about the uh, price reductions. This is looking at our three, um, uh, um, uh, in a sense, core vaccines, pentavalent, pneumo, and rota. And you can see a 50% reduction over this, um, over this uh, uh, time period. Um, one of the important things to say, though, is, is that we are reaching an asymptote. There's going to be a point where we cannot lower the price anymore because we have to make sure that companies not only you know, are able to make adequate profit to continue to do R&D, but also that they can continue to invest in improving their facilities, et cetera. So we can't expect the same dramatic changes we've had in price up until this point going forward. But of course, um, where there are changes, it's good for, for countries. Um, this savings um, is, uh, turns out to be $900 million. Um, the donors love hearing that. They say, this is great, you know, you, you saved us, and we couldn't do that ourselves if we bilaterally purchased vaccines because we're doing it globally. But what's even more important, as I said before, is that this is for the countries to be able to afford their vaccines going forward. So what you see here are the examples of the, of the vaccines we have and the coverage levels in them. This is what we're trying to do is shift out coverage with all of the vaccines to try to not just deal with zero dose and under immunized, but to get people fully immunized. Obviously, that is difficult to do, but it's something we as an alliance are continuing to prioritize. So where are we on replenishment? We did the launch for replenishment in August in Japan, in Yokohama. We did it there because um, traditionally um, Japan has been the G7 country that has been the, um, the, the least um, uh, largest supporter of Gavi. And so we wanted to get them um, whipped up to um, do more um, on Gavi. And you can see the prime minister and the foreign minister at the time both spoke. We had eight African heads of, sorry, six African heads of state speak extemporaneously about how important this was to their countries, which was really fabulous. Um, the the uh, replenishment
management this time is going to be in the UK June 3rd and 4th. Um, we've started building up for that. We, we were quiet for a while around the global fund replenishment to support them, but we've picked up um, uh, action again at Davos this time with the 20th um, uh, anniversary celebration. We're having a high-level meeting in March on science um, in the UK and then the pledging conference in London. Um, Steve has already mentioned um, this. This is actually a, um, a 1.16 billion four-year commitment from the U.S. Um, this is actually the second commitment we received this time, so we're really proud that the U.S. not only increased 16% from last time, but they came out early and made this statement. And um, this is going to be very important to set the bar for other countries. And I think it's a particularly strong statement given the fact that um, you know, the rest of the budget wasn't perhaps um, um, as um, um, showing a, a fondness for increases for global health programs. So I think it does show the value that they place on, um, um, on this alliance going forward. So just to finish, where are we going to be from this? Um, by the end of this period, we will have immunized um, uh, more than 1.1 billion children and prevented more than 22 million deaths. So I think this is really talking about scale at its best and how we can make a difference globally in both helping countries protect themselves, but as importantly, making the world safe from infectious diseases. So with that, I hope I've given you a little bit of a view of what Gavi is doing in its past, um, what it's trying to do in the future, and then a little bit about the replenishment. Um, are we going to do questions now, or are we going to do those afterwards? I don't know what the... Okay, great. Thank you all. Irene, you want to go down to the end there? Oh, okay. Do you want me to sit in the middle? Right? Yes. Following instructions. <laughs> um, yeah, why don't I sit here? Yeah. If you could go over there, thank you. Thank you all. Seth, thanks so much for that presentation. And we'll get back to many of the issues you touched on in the course of the conversation. What we're going to do now is, is hear from Irene Robin and Catherine sort of in quick sequence to get the conversation rolling. Um, and, and we'll come to the audience uh, as soon as we can and hear from you. Uh, there's, you know, we've heard the, the story of the marvelous successes and progress made. And uh, we're going to ask our three speakers to, to offer their reflections. There's still plenty of tough challenges, some of which Seth has signaled to us in his presentation. We'll circle back to some of those. I'm going to first begin, I'm going to introduce our three speakers and we'll ask Irene Cook to, to lead off. Irene is the Acting Assistant Administrator. You have their bios, the speaker's bios here. We first met when she was um, in Indonesia, uh, where she served as the Health Attaché, uh, the PEPFAR coordinator. You did everything, as I recall, uh, there. She still does everything. Small remit for a for four-year four period. She's been very integral at, um, uh, while in the um, uh, Bureau for Global Health, very integral in driving forward the global health security agenda. 
uh, very integral now as the acting assistant administrator and senior advisor within, within USAID on a, on, a, on a broad spectrum of issues. She serves on the board of Gavi and has done that since 2016. Uh, so Irene, thank you so much for joining us. Robin Nandy um, came from New York. Thank you so much for coming down to be with us today. Uh, where he is at UNICEF and is the Principal Advisor and Chief of Immunizations at UNICEF Headquarters. Uh, we're thrilled to have you with us here today. Uh, your boss, Henrietta Four, is uh, my boss in earlier. She's, of course, been connected to CSIS now for over 35 years, been extremely generous to us, and so we, you, we don't miss any opportunity to uh, praise her and to have UNICEF as part of our program here. So thank you so much, um, Robin, for for coming with us, to be with us today. Uh, Catherine Bliss, you have the new paper that Catherine uh, authored. You have this, which I would urge you all to read. It's an it's a extremely, as usual, extremely well-written and well-thought-out uh, piece around the US national interests um, in supporting uh, Gavi. Uh, and uh, uh, is, a, is, is a powerful and, and, and very eloquent um, statement and Catherine, congratulations on that. There is on the website for this um, CSIS. There is also a short five-minute video that's an explainer that Catherine put together that you can that that I think is is very very helpful. Uh, we have a commission on health security on strengthening America's health security. It's been ongoing now for uh, come April will be two years. Um, we've put out a a a a. a a final report at the end of last year, which contained a number of recommendations. We'll talk about some of those. Catherine was at the very center of looking at issues around immunization, around how do you protect um, those, those infrastructure and programs in places of disorder, and how do you uh, build local capacity, and how do you uh, be better predictor, predictors of where there will be interruptions and gaps and the like. And we're very indebted to Catherine for all of that work. She's one of our most uh, versatile senior scholars, works, has worked on, led our work on, on water policy, uh, on Venezuela, and, and many other topics. So thank you all for being with us. We're going to quickly go Irene, Robin, Catherine, collect your thoughts, and then we'll come back. Seth, uh, give you a chance, and then we'll start, we'll start the, uh, the conversation from that point forward. Irene, thank you for being with us. Great, thanks so much, Steve, and thank you very much for hosting this event. It really is a, a great pleasure to be here with such a terrific panel, and happy birthday, Gabby. That's very exciting. Um, it is, and as you heard from both Steve and Seth, we're really so excited to, to be able to talk about the U.S. government's uh, commitment to, to Gabby for the next replenishment period. I mean, this is indeed not only an increase over what the U.S. had done for the last replenishment period, but to be able to do this early on and to have it as part of the president's budget is really pretty exciting. And I think the kinds of things that, that Seth talked about in his presentation, that Gavi has not only had this phenomenal impact of you know, reaching three quarters of a billion kids and saving 13 million lives, but also the cost sharing with countries all the way through the cycle and engaging private sector and others, is really makes Gavi a really strong selling point. 
I think one of the things we're not only very excited about the replenishment, but we're also very excited about the whole, the, the kinds of issues that, that Seth talked about in the Gavi 5.0 strategy. I mean, this is really the partnership between USAID and Gavi has been a very strong one. We were one of the initial donors for Gavi and have been part of the Gavi family and alliance since, since the very beginning. But those issues of equity that is so the, really the underpinning for the next strategy, reaching those, those, those zero-dose kids and the under-immunized kids is very, very, very much in line with the priorities that we have in our, our child health and our maternal child health programs. And we see that as a, the life course of immunization that, that Seth talked about as well, really does touch on a lot of the issues that we're trying to engage with, with through USAID. And I think as we think about the trying to engage on the equity issue, that really is getting to the systems and as, as Seth talked about reaching other partners, but really trying to scale up strategies and do so in a sustainable way. You know, we've talked a little bit about coronavirus, but the investments that come through immunization and how that touches primary health care and building health systems is really very, very much related to what we need to do on global health security, which is that sort of foundational work that has already been done for a number of years, but that we hope lays the foundation for addressing coronavirus and other outbreaks. So what, the other piece I would just note briefly is the, the, kind, the life course approach to vaccination that we see in 5.0 really does also touch on a lot of the other things that we do in USAID from the, not only from the health sector across the board, but also the, the education and other, other sectors that, that we work on. I think that's where other links in the future are really, uh, gives us lots and lots of opportunities to move forward. So I think the, you know, we've talked a little bit about already and hearing from Seth and from, from Steve on the, that broader alliance set of partners, of course. UNICEF has been one of our core partners. Henrietta was also our boss long ago. <laughs> Just <laughs> noting that the family continues. But it really is key to work not only with our UN partners, but civil society and other partners to really move forward on this agenda. And that's where it does come together. And I think the kind of progress that we've seen and the tremendous impact that Gavi has had already in the, in the first 20 years will see continue moving forward. And we very, very much look forward to be part of that alliance and working together with you. Thanks. Thank you, Arane. Robin. Yeah, thanks for having me. And uh, uh, I will convey your greetings to Henrietta when I get back. Uh, uh, but uh, as, a, as a founding member of Gavi, I uh, would like to also uh, wish us a very happy birthday, 20th birthday. I think the point here is that uh, the Gavi Alliance is now a mature alliance. And I'm going to touch on it a little bit from the perspective of a multilateral partner. And I, I, I hope I can speak to uh, speak for my colleagues at WHO as well. Uh, uh, you know, when I say this, I'm going to uh, uh, keep my remarks fairly short, leaving time for questions. If you go after Seth and Irene, uh, they've said all the important bits. But I'm going to touch on uh, four, uh, you know, four specific points. I'll start off with partnership. I think. I think what the Gavi Alliance has successfully done is actually harness the comparative advantage of all the partners. Uh, whilst we, were, we had bilateral relationships, we were working in parallel sometimes uh, to each other, the alliance have, have, have brought us together towards a common vision, towards a common goal. I think this has been a huge achievement. Uh, and you know, to, to ask us the question, what is Gavi? We are all Gavi. Everybody here in this room is Gavi. Uh, uh, the United States government, USAID, CDC is a part of Gavi. 
multilaterals, uh, uh, civil society, and so on. And I see a number of uh, our alliance partners here in this room as well. If we talk, we, 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 we talk about Gavi 5.0 and the challenges we face, I think the partnerships are going to be even more critical. Uh, we, cannot no, no, we can no longer rely only on global level partners. We need to go national, we need to go sub-national. Because the proverbial low-hanging fruit has been exhausted. Everything from now on is much more difficult. Things need to be done differently and, 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 and we need to broaden our partnership. The second point is I think uh, uh, what the Alliance has done very well is, is, is promote accountability. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Seth talked about, uh, uh, you know, a little bit about it, but, but it's accountability for delivering results. Alliance partners holding each other accountable, again, mature relationship, we can, we can agree, we can disagree, but then we still, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, move towards a common goal, and very importantly, accountability of country governments. I think that is extremely critical. Uh, that governments are responsible for the health and well-being of their population, of their children, of their mothers, and, and the alliance comes together to promote this sort of accountability. The third thing uh, I've, uh, I've, I'd like to say is, uh, is, is in terms of innovation. And, and, and Seth touched on this. He had a few slides showing the kind of innovation that the Gavi Alliance has been involved in but I don't want us to leave the room thinking that uh, innovation is all about uh, shiny, bright objects. Uh, innovation is a mindset. Innovation is the way we think. And when we start talking about achieving equity, achieving a high vaccine coverage in remote rural locations, conflict-affected locations, in urban slums, we, there's no one-size-fits-all anymore. To get us from 30% to 80%, you could do it to, for, to a certain extent with one size fits all. But now you've got to go context by context, address what the barriers are, and, and, and take it forward from there. My fourth point is the Gavi voice. This is the most powerful thing that we have. Uh, we have set, we have our heads of agencies engaging with heads of state on a regular basis and advocating for immunization, advocating for children, advocating for mothers. And I think this is a huge uh, 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 potential that we have going into Gavi 5.0. I'll just end by saying that, that uh, uh, you know, highlighting one of the uh, last points that Seth made as well. is immunization has reached higher coverage than most other child survival interventions. If a child is not vaccinated, we can pretty much be sure that they haven't received any other child survival interventions, water sanitation, nutrition, whatever the case may be. So it provides an entry point, and we are, as an alliance, committed to working less vertically and much more horizontally for greater uh, uh, primary health care gains. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Catherine. So I'll just say a few words about the report and what I was trying to, to outline or understand about the relationship between Gavi and, and U.S. Uh, global health security and development interests. And, you know, really just wanted to focus on, on three aspects there. You know, one was to look at this long relationship over, over 20 years and really, you know, 
note that the, particularly the, the strong emphasis on equity, improving access to and uptake of vaccines and the link to primary health services is very much connected along with uh, the efforts around vaccine stockpiles is very much connected to the U.S. Global Health Security Strategy, which has been released and which really identifies immunization and strengthening uh, U.S. engagement with other countries around immunization as a key component of that strategy. You know, at the second time, one of the, the aspects about the Gavi model that resonates very clearly with U.S. development models is the emphasis on the country's path to fully self-financing immunization programs. And you know, the current focus around the journey to self-reliance and the emphasis on really helping countries identify and envision a path toward fully supporting their vaccine programs in the short term and in the long term is very much consistent with that. And then the third area that really you know, strikes me as very consistent with you know, a larger set of, I think, US diplomatic objectives really centers around the incorporation of the private sector into the alliance, the, you know, the integration of countries, multilateral agencies, and in particular, the private sector, um, the long-term partners that have been part of the alliance from the beginning, but also those newer um, startups and innovative companies through the Infuse program and other areas that, you know, in particular, you know, as the United States through its science diplomacy, through its, you know, larger diplomatic outreach seeks to kind of showcase the best of U.S. innovation and entrepreneurship, you know, the integration of some of those partners into the Gavi model, I think helps, helps show the way. In terms of you know, the, the recent uh, commitment and you know, the, the longer term you know, relationship, you know, I was uh, very interested to hear, I think we were traveling uh, in London for some other meetings when I heard about the, the US commitment and you know, this multi-year commitment, uh, which was very exciting and interesting to hear. And I, I feel that it's important to underscore that it's important to maintain a bilateral engagement around uh, immunizations as well, that, that the pledge to Gavi should be part of a larger US commitment around immunizations. Not only USAID, but also the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention play a strong role in supporting global immunization programs. And you know, there's quite a bit of overlap between US AID, maternal and child health priority countries, CDC global immunization priority countries, and Gavi eligible countries, but it's not, it's not complete. There are, there are differences, and it's important, I think, to maintain those long-term bilateral relationships, not only around immunizations, but around health system strengthening writ large, both in order to reinforce uh, support for countries as they move towards transition or um, engage in, in other um, relationships and, and work around immunizations, but also in particular in some of those middle-income, non-eligible countries where the United States has had historic relationships and can be supportive as Gavi works its way toward trying to understand how it can engage over the long term with, with those countries as well. So I'll stop there. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I had the uh, pleasure uh, recently, February 14th, 15th, at the Munich Security Conference to be with Seth and with Natasha Billamoria, and uh, at that time, of course, there was great interest on the COVID-19, the coronavirus outbreak. We'll get to that uh, at some point in the course of our discussion. Um, there was also a health security roundtable, uh, a dinner with uh, Norwegian Prime Minister Solberg. Um, across all of these activities, one thing that came through very powerfully 
two things that came through very powerfully. One is that the degree to which Gavi is operating in close sync with CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Pandemic Epidem Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, uh, with the uh, Wellcome Trust, with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, it was it was very impressive how mature and 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 those relationships have become and how central they are in thinking through the response to this new challenge that COVID-19 poses to us. And the second point is just how much um, intellectually Seth contributes to this debate. The quality of the contributions made and the interventions at all of those different points in time, it was just very striking. Now, we want to shift to some of the sort of tougher enduring uh, challenges that are out in the environment in which all of this work is taking place. One issue that we've given enormous focus to recently in the course of our commission is disorder, it's insecurity. It's the, the, the rising danger level and the spread of disorder into many more places where in fact we're talking about these low income countries, we're talking about the, the demand um, uh, being very high, the unmet need, and where outbreaks are, in fact, oftentimes situated. Obviously, DRC has become a, a, a big focus in, in the last two years, not just because of the Ebola outbreak, but also, as Seth mentioned, um, measles, cholera, other, other outbreaks which reveal the, the problems. And the, the discussions that we've had have come around to the, the, the question of what kind of capacities are going to be required to operate in these environments safely and effectively without militarizing the response. We can't fall back on uh, unrealistically high risk intolerance. We can't sit on the sidelines. We have to have our skilled personnel there safely and effectively at the hot zone, at the front face of the outbreaks and meeting the demand. We need to be investing in our partners uh, to cope in those, in those areas. We need an, a kind of expeditionary mindset, a different timeline, a different set of expectations. And Seth, you've already pushed Gavi to sort of lean forward and think differently and put a policy together and begun operating. Tell us a little bit about what you think um, is needed further right now both in terms of the way Gavi operates, but also what you look for from the other partners that you're operating with in meeting this, in meeting this, this demand. So thanks, Steve. And of course, this is one of the greatest challenges. Um, if you look at immunization in fragile countries, it is at least 10 to 20% less than it is in non-fragile countries. So that effect is clearly there. And I think the first thing that we have to do is we have to get the world to think that it's a norm to provide your basic you know, immunization systems for your populations. Now, why do I say that is, you know, if you come in on a disease-specific approach and say, gee, I'm, I'm here from the polio program and I'm going to keep immunizing until we eradicate polio, but I'm not going to do anything else, eventually you begin to see pushback from the population who says, is this really for us or is it for you and how does that work? Yeah. So we need a norm that is about you know, doing this for everybody. And of course, if, 
immunization is the most cost-effective intervention. For every dollar you spend, you get a $54 return. So even more for a poor country, this is where you should be putting your money. Now, if you get to that point where we all agree that this is a global public good that countries ought to be financing, then you have to begin to ask the question, how do you work in places that are fragile, that have problems? How do you make sure that immunization is available to both sides? So when we're working in Yemen, how do we make sure not just mm -hmm. you know, the government, but the North is also engaged trying to immunize their kids, or in Somalia, or in DRC? And we've been able to do that in many places. And what I would postulate is that what we need to do is build out those systems so that those systems are available for all of the other activities. Of course, North, North Kivu was not a great place to have an Ebola outbreak given the years of fighting. But one of the things that really set it off was when they decided they had to stop the election there because there was Ebola. Of course, the local rumor was the reason that they brought Ebola here was to stop the election because we're opposition, you know, a place where the opposition would win. So this is why getting the norms are so critical. And the last thing I'd say about that is prior to Ebola, but going on now, we've worked um, with the previous administration, with the current president, to try to create the Mashoka Plan, named after one of their own leaders. And um, it's really exciting because they just met um, with the president um, uh, two days ago in, in Kinshasa. I couldn't go because I was on this trip. But the president has taken leadership. He has called all of the state governors together. They've signed an immunization declaration. And we're trying to get a healthy competition going at a local level to try to get better coverage. And, and to me, this is the way we're going to get there. Um, it has been done in the past, but it has to be normalized. And in a world that is now becoming more national in its focus, kind of going back to making this the norm and then trying to help countries do it is going to be critical to success. Let me ask you also on the question <coughs> of uh, the communications crisis that we face in vaccines around weaponized social media, around distrust in industry and governments and public health, um, the disinformation that is, that is so uh, pervasive these days. How do you combat that? How do you bring quality, trust, trusted science to a public that is confused, disoriented, anxious, um, not sure who to trust? in this period? What have you learned in terms of that? Well, I mean, it's a complicated question because it's a different solution in, in the industrialized world and in the developing world. The industrialized world, we are complacent. I mean, you all accept that if you have a child, that child is going to live, it is going to be healthy, it is going to live up to its full potential, more or less. That's what you expect. And as a result, this idea of you're going to go and inject people with things that make pain and make them cry and maybe they have not organic and maybe they have things that aren't good in it, that sets up the possibility for rumors. We didn't have that problem in developing countries. In developing countries, you would walk a huge distance to get these vaccines because you saw, you know, auntie had a kid that died, your neighbor was sick, you saw these diseases, they were really there. That's now, by the way, changing a little bit because we're being successful with immunization. But slightly different mindsets. But what's interesting is they've now come together. It wasn't like that 10 years ago. So today, if you're in northern Nigeria and you have some questions about vaccines, you go on the internet. And on the internet, you see the same misinformation. So what the alliance has tried to do is, first of all, think about demand as a continuum. 
On one end, there is people who will not immunize under any circumstances. It's only a small number of people. On the other end are people who will go at any length to get immunization. And then there's everybody in the middle, and you want to move those people forward. So focusing on demand, and there's a demand hub, and we're trying to work with governments and local leaders to do that. The second thing we've been doing as an alliance is to reach out to the social media companies, and we've had two requests for them. One, get rid of the fake information, because that obviously, if it's patently fake information, it's killing people, it shouldn't be there. But that's not enough. When a mother is looking for information, how do you then steer that mother to get good information? And frankly, sometimes they don't want to go to the CDC website or the WHO website, even those are authoritative. Maybe they don't trust those. How do we make sure there are voices that are there that can help them do it? And then lastly, and this is more in your line, how do we get rid of the destructive things like the Russian bots that are providing, using vaccines as a source of misinformation? I mean, this is a broader problem. This is an Interpol problem. It's a problem for our elections, et cetera, this idea of misinformation more broadly. But the last thing I'd say about this is that it is mostly about local trust. What we know, what's the country that has the lowest vaccine confidence in the world? It's France, for God's sakes, the country of Louis Pasteur. What's the highest confidence? It's Rwanda. Very interesting. But the really important thing we know is that, is that people trust their local healthcare providers more than they trust governments, more than they trust you know, pharmaceutical companies or others. So how do we make sure that they're prepared with the right information and, and help, help them with that? Irene and Robin, both of your organizations are very active on these issues. Mm -hmm. Tell us a bit about what you're doing and how you address these, Irene. Yeah, well, first on the information piece, and I'd very much agree with everything Seth said, and I do really want to congratulate Gavi on setting up the demand hub because recognizing that information and getting good information out and, and addressing the, the issue, whether it be vaccine hesitancy or misinformation, whatever else, is really a, a critical piece. And it's really critical to, to the objectives of reaching, reaching every kid. Um, and as Seth said, the, what's really, really important is getting that good information into the hand of health providers and those who are trusted in the community. And in global health, we have a long, long, long history of knowing how do you get good messages to communities and to people in a way that's trusted and, and so people can, families can act on, on those good messages. So using those techniques that we've used long ago in family planning and in child health and other areas for immunization, I think is absolutely the way to go. And that's certainly something that we've been working on for as long as I can remember in, in USAID and, and very much are partnering with, with Gavi on, on that effort. And just for a minute, going back to your, your, the previous point, Steve, that you were talking about, about the, the issue with health emergency or emergencies and others, and I do think that is the reality we are living in, right? That overlap between countries and crisis and whether they be man-made or natural disasters is, and what we do on the normal development side, if you will, is becoming, a, the overlap is nearly com complete, right? So it does mean, and I think Seth made this point before, that We've got to tailor approaches, and, and it does mean doing business differently, right? We've got to reach people who are living in a, in a very, very unsafe environment, right? And may not be able to, to use the same set of partners that we used before, looking differently, and how do you tailor your approaches in a way that really can, can work within those, those kinds of settings that are, are often in Thank places. you. Raman? In addition to what Seth and Irene said on the communication issue, and Seth, prefaced it by saying it is complex, and it is complex. And I think, uh, uh, you know, just, just 
just to draw on you know two things that haven't been said yet, uh, uh, but but picking on, on on Seth's comment on France, I was once described what it takes to get a kid vaccinated in France. <laughs> you take the kid out of school, you take them to the pediatrician, get a prescription, kid goes back to school. You take the prescription, go to a pharmacy, get the vaccine. You, you, you get the vaccine, bring it to the house, put it in the refrigerator at home, wait till you get your kid out of school uh, the next time, take, to, take it to the pediatrician, and then, and then get vaccinated. Ladies and gentlemen, this is not vaccine hesitancy. <laughs> this is vaccine inconvenience, right? So the bottom line is, is, as we talk about vaccine hesitancy, I think we've got to talk about convenient, context-specific delivery of services that is easy to be uh, uh, delivered and, 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 and facilitates uptake by the community. And if we talk about remote, rural, urban, uh, uh, conflict-affected, the delivery strategies will have to be completely different. Uh, different. In, urban, in, in urban areas, both parents work. It's very difficult for them to go out and seek vaccination. The other aspect of it is the way services are delivered. I mean, I mean, oftentimes, if you're a marginalized community, if you're from a, or a minority community, you go, you get barked at by the health worker. You get treated really badly by the health worker. So the other aspect, you know, the linkage here with broader uh, primary health care is health worker behavior, health workers' attitudes, what advice they give it, because it's all about trust. You will read many things on the internet. You will not believe it if you have trust in, this, the, in, in, in the source of information that you have. It's when that trust is eroded, you're going to believe in all sorts of other things. And then, you know, uh, the other issues have already been said. But it's, it's not vaccine misinformation. It's, it's misinformation about a host of other things. And let's remind ourselves that vaccine uh, misinformation is as old as the vaccine itself. It goes back to England in, in, in the 1800s with smallpox vaccine. There were anti-vax lo uh, 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 lobbies operating at that time as well. Thank you very much. Uh, Seth, in, your, in, in his remarks, he mentioned that uh, the middle-income countries can become problematic. Fifteen countries have transitioned, graduated into middle-income status. I think Gavi's been very assiduous at attempting to be supportive and revise their approaches to this, but there are risks for that population of countries, and there's a, it comes down to a question of motivating leadership there to pick this up. Catherine, I wanted to ask you, and then Seth, Catherine, what, what can you do in this context to lower the risk that these countries fall back? because it's too expensive, too difficult, they're not committed in the same way. What, what can be done in order to lower that risk and have more success in that transition process? Well, I think there are two things that we can look at. I mean, one is identifying you know, ways for countries to access lower prices for a longer period of time, whether it's through something like the revolving fund, which the middle-income countries in the Americas have access to, or some other kind of scheme that, that might be developed in that sense. But you know, another is, you know, really goes back to this point I made earlier about the importance of you know, strong bilateral engagement, whether by the United States or, or other 
development partners to help countries, you know, really start looking, you know, ahead to something like transition, whether it's Gavi or something else, way in advance, you know, not, not just as they, they begin to, you know, get notifications that they're approaching the, the threshold, but, you know, start thinking, you know, many, many years earlier, you know, how can, you know, the finance and, and the health sector work together and, you know, to support those kinds of dialogues um, at the bilateral, you know, through bilateral. Mm -hmm. Seth, how do, what can you do with your office? to motivate leaders of middle-income countries to step forward in the ways required for there not to be regression, but for there to be continued advance? Well, th there's a set of answers to this. So first of all, the countries who are transitioning, Catherine's right, that when we started working on transition, we relate to the game on preparations. Now that we have gotten experienced on it, we understand that, and we're now preparing every country for transition mm -hmm. way out, and that's mm -hmm. really important. For the countries, though, that have not been Gavi eligible, um, there is a really interesting challenge here. And there's two sides to the challenge. If you go to the countries, they're fine with what they're doing, but the prices are too high for them to have access, mm -hmm. and so they just don't introduce new vaccines. If you go to the companies, they say, well, you know, it's too risky for us in these communities and we have to charge more. So the question is, is there a sweet spot that could be done? Could one provide some type of guarantees that companies would say, gee, here's a, here's a market that is not being currently filled. Here is a, 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 um, a set of new uh, you know, countries we can engage with at volume that is guaranteed for us. So we can now make the investments to scale up. In doing that, we're willing to put it at a slightly lower price point and then going to the countries to say, okay, maybe it's inconvenient for you to work through a mechanism of having pulled procurement, but if you do that, you can get a better price point. And this is what we're looking at now as an alliance with the partners. And I think in a sense that, you know, if we don't make either of those sweet spots, it won't happen. But I, I'll use an example. A country like Egypt, you know, is just mm -hmm. a little bit above the Gavi threshold. They have very good coverage, 95% coverage. They haven't introduced any of the pneumonia, the diarrhea, or the cervical cancer vaccine because they have to pay five to 10 times the Gavi price. And they're willing to pay more than the Gavi price, but five to 10 times is just too much for them. So mm -hmm. how do we help them in terms of doing that? So that's the conversation that has to happen. It's a mature conversation. Industry initially was, well, I'm not sure we want to do this, but let's discuss it. Countries where I'm not sure we want to do it. And what we're trying to do now is figure out, can we come up with a win-win strategy that makes sense? Because what we want is every child in the world to be immunized, not just the poorest, not just the rich, but every child. And to do that, we're going to need to help some of those, particularly on the lower, lowest end of the middle income strata. Thank you very much. Um, we're going to turn to our audience. Uh, momentarily, I want to ask you one more question, Seth. COVID-19, does this create an opportunity to re reanimate the G7 or the G20? I mean, we've had many of the critical global health issues, lower visibility, lower prioritization in recent years. Now we have a situation emerging that is looking increasingly dangerous and long-term. What's your view? So I, I think certainly there is an opportunity, whether it'll get taken or not is a different story. If I go back to now five years ago, it was funny, I did a TED talk 
Bill <laughs> Gates did a TED Talk at the same time, same year, and they put us back to back. And, and he talks specifically about, in the, in the military context, we go out and do rehearsals all the time. We go out and, and, and try to see what's happening and have preparedness exercises. Why don't we do that in global health? And that was his talk. And my talk was about, gee, we need some type of new, ex, you know, new mechanism to go ahead and make vaccines, to prepare for new diseases, to have platform technologies. And lo and behold, why was that happening? That was around the Ebola era, right. but here we are. And we do have CEPI, and we do have exercises that have been done, so we're better prepared. But either we're right now on a very severe dress rehearsal for the very big one, or we're in the beginning of the very big one, and we're not perfectly prepared. So the answer is we all ought to be talking about it. And this was the conversation that we had at the Munich Security Conference, because all of the generals that were there, all the intelligence people, all the nuclear weapon people were all there talking about things that were much more unlikely to happen than the evolutionary certainty of infectious disease outbreaks. But we weren't talking about it. And so I think this is an opportunity now. Of course, we could end up exactly where we were with Ebola. So just as a funny side story, when we raised that 300, or we, we said we would put that $390 million on the table, the board said to me, Irene was there, um, we, you know, this is, we don't have this in our budget, you go raise the money. I, I you know, talking to governments, no problem. Money's not the object. We'll do whatever it takes. Well, I went out and raised money. I'm pretty good at raising money. I got one government to make one commitment. That was the US government made a commitment of $20 million. That was it. Nobody else, because everybody said, oh, Ebola, that's yesterday's problem. And, and they went back to it. So the challenge is, we don't do that with the military. We keep the nuclear submarines under the polarized caps. We keep all of these systems going all the time, even if we're not at DEFCON, you know, at a raised level. The question is, can we do that for global health security? And we must get there, because this is an evolutionary certainty. Thank you. Let's take some, we're going to bundle together several different uh, questions, interventions, and what I'd ask each person, be very succinct, a single intervention, and just identify yourself. Let's start right here, and then we have a hand here. We'll, we'll bring together four or five folks, please. Uh, Carl Hen, um, thank you, uh, Dr. Berkeley, and the panelists for the interesting presentation and discussion. Um, to uh, bring up the elephant in the room, um, there is an uh, article posted from The Atlantic today in which a Harvard epidemiologist um, predicts that up to 40 to 70% of the world's population will get the coronavirus. Um, any idea how to handle that? Okay. Hold that for a moment. Right here. Right here. Thank you. Please identify. Uh, uh, right here. To your, on the other side there. Thank you. Hi, thank you. Um, my name is Kelly Bridges and I work with a group called Global Water 2020. Um, thank you for these really insightful remarks and it's really great to see this commitment towards a more horizontal as opposed to vertical approach um, to achieving Gabby's vision. So with that in mind, um, and also with uh, color in mind, I'd like to ask how should the WASH community work with Gabby to build out WASH infrastructure after a vaccine campaign as to obviate the need for the next vaccine campaign? Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Right behind here. 
Hi, everybody. Laura Schimpf with the uh, Technical Director with John Snow Immunization Center. Welcome. Good to see you all. And a few of us around here are 20 years in this long enough to have seen the birth of Gabby, so happy birthday. Um, wanted to ask you about how we address the real twofold issue of financing. One, around the operational realities that most immunization program service delivery is financed at a subnational level, and there's challenges with sustaining that. With the second phase, or the second part, which is more around the centralized vaccine procurement that global and national uh, budgets control, but often that create the mortgages or the financing challenges then for the sustainability factor. And with that, you know, I'm thinking along the lines of how, what we've seen that does work. For example, Small Doable Actions with Champion Communities in Madagascar has enabled them through USAID and other funding to sustain prevention during outbreaks. The Mashako Plan, named after some of us who knew him, former Minister of Health Mashako, who really was a leader in trying to get the early DRC program moving. So how do we, how do we match that to address these operational funding issues? Thanks. Thank you. We have a hand in the back there. Chris? Hi, Chris Collins with Friends of the Global Fight Against AIDS TV and Malaria. Uh, thank you for the great presentations and the wonderful work. Uh, as you can probably tell from the name of my organization, we're invested in the fight against AIDS TB and malaria and really glad to hear that you're grappling with the relationship between Gavi services <clears throat> and building out stronger health systems in general and, and helping move countries move toward UHC. So I wonder what you're learning about that work, in other words, the bridge between vaccine delivery and, and UHC without compromising you know, the urgency and effectiveness of your vaccine programs. What are the lessons of that, do you think, for AIDS, TB, and malaria programs in terms of keeping up the uh, effort and the energy um, on fighting those diseases, but also thinking more broadly about health services. Thank you. Uh, what I suggest we do is hold on Carl's mega question for a moment. <laughs> I want to uh, invite Seth to respond, but I want our other speakers also to jump in on some of these questions. So we have the WASH question, we have the financing question, and we have the UHC question. Seth. And we have a COVID question. <laughs> We're going to get back to COVID after we've had a okay. moment here. Fine, okay. So, um, you know, in terms of the, 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 the question on WASH, I think um, this is a really important question because um, you know, the board, when it began to look at working on cholera, and by the way, similarly on rabies, we began to say, you know, the solution for these problems are not the vaccines. The vaccines are interventions temporarily to help, but the solution has to be, for example, on the rabies side, animal rabies control. And on the wash side, obviously, it's about clean water and sanitation. Um, that being said, of course, we should not, not use tools we have. And so the challenge is coming together. And the board agonized about it. Do we mandate that? And if we mandate it and we can negotiate it, how do we move it forward? So what we hope to have is a gentleman's agreement with groups working on it. And, and I have now become a champion of WASH in many places, talking about the lack of investments that are going on in WASH as are critical to being able to move forward in cholera. But we've got to be synergistic in these approaches, and we have to keep in mind long-term development. So even when we talk about, you know, with Robin, we've talked about, for example, 
in Pakistan, how do we enhance the interventions to win hearts and minds around polio, not just give them all vaccines, but give them other things. Of course, we'd love to give them water and sanitation. That may take a little bit longer, so don't make that the only barrier, but make sure you continue to work on it. Um, on, on the financing issue, um, I, I think this is, um, you know, as part of, we, we didn't talk about it here, but as part of the SDG3 action plan, Gavi, the Global Fund, and um, the World Bank are working together on the financing accelerator. And the purpose there is to try to do two things. One is to make, there's, make sure there's more money for health, trying to move towards the 15% Abuja commitment, trying to get countries to invest more. But the other side is more health for the money. And that's, that allocative efficiency is even more important. Uh, for the poorest countries. One thinks about it in rich countries. Rich countries have more resources. They can waste more. I'm not saying people like to, but they can waste more. Where you don't have the resources, you have to be very focused. And so what that means is that we've got to get local communities to understand the importance of financing these very basic services, which, by the way, cover 85% of the health interventions, of the health results, will come out of basic primary health care and so we need to make sure that people are putting that money in, and that's part of the conversation at the national level, at the regional level, and then at the, at the local level. And, and I'll just mention for Chris, I think you know, we're working with the communities to think about that. My own view is that you, know, you start with UHC and you say, we're going to do UHC. What does that mean? I know what it means for Brazil or for Thailand. What does it mean for Central African Republic? The challenge is to get very concrete, and it's going to be about these basic services, building them out, but that's not just for vaccination. It's going to be for malaria. It's a little different for some of the other interventions because those are disease-specific, yeah. but um, I think we, you know, we, we have to take those lessons and work together. Catherine, you want to add anything? Uh, sure, just on the financing piece, you know, thinking about the discussion earlier around, you know, how do you address, uh, you know, immunization coverage in conflicts and, and disordered settings. I know we've talked about this directly, but, you know, the, um, the issue of, you know, having to wait for emergency funds until there's actually an outbreak can, you know, sometimes be, you know, too little, too late, whereas, you know, being able to think about some kind of flexibilities with, contingency or emergency funds that as it becomes apparent that immunization coverage is lower and there are you know, problems likely to happen if there were better ways to be able to release funds quickly um, for that kind of setting as well. Uh, Irene. Yeah, just uh, building on a couple of things that <coughs> Seth said, and on, on the WASH question, indeed, exactly as Seth said, it's been part of the discussion of how do we go from immunization and connect to these broader issues. And I, I think that is, it, it's very much actually related to Chris's point as well, right? because you do need to look at immunization as part of a larger system and connect to those delivering water and sanitation, but also primary health care. And it's been, actually, Chris, in response to your question, it's been a bit of a debate, right? You know, do you just go after, and it's long-standing debate, do you just go after, you know, get everybody covered with measles, or do you try to build it into the system? And you kind of need to do a little bit of both, right? You need to have those targeted programs, but building into the system as well, which is, I think, very much in line with some of the debates that are happening in AIDS, TB, and malaria, which we're also share your commitment to all the three of those issues, but it's got to be part of the system. The other piece I would add very briefly is that for, for all of these issues, we're talking about 
reaching a larger set of partners, right? So Gavi can't only work with the immunization program at country level. You've got to touch the bilateral partners who are working on a lot of these issues of health system strengthening or water and sanitation, go beyond the immunization folks at UNICEF and everybody. So it is really reaching that broader rate of partners. And then lastly, in response to the question, I think you know so much of what we're talking about is political commitment, and that's very much about where the financing comes in. So Nigeria is actually a really good example where work has been happening not only at the national level, but also at the state level. And it's, you know, as, as Gavi works with that full array of partners, which it really has been, it's been a phenomenal example of bringing all the partners to the table at country level, but really pushing not only the national government, but also state governments to take action and put money on the table for what they need to do for immunization. Thank you. Robin, did you want to add any remarks? Yeah, very briefly. Yes, uh, please. You know, I think, uh, number one, on the wash issue and, 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 and the wider issue, the only thing that I would add is it can never be one or the other. And whether we talk about cholera, we talk about Ebola, and if there is at, at some point a vaccine against COVID-19, vaccines should not lull us into, a compla into complacency that we stop doing other basic uh, uh, you know, public health interventions. The public health interventions are extremely critical and you know, there's a risk here because if you're talking about uh, the, the future of vaccines, you talk about the malaria vaccine, you're talking about vaccines with much lower efficacy that will not be able to operate alone in the way that measles vaccines have. So it has to go in combination with it. Second point is on, on, on system strengthening and horizontal. Again, it's really important to manage expectations here. Gavi Alliance resources will not be adequate to build up health systems everywhere all the time. And I think we have to identify where the entry points are through immunization. I think zero dose provides a huge opportunity. Because if, 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 if immunization can focus on these unreached community, make them visible to the health system, I think that's a huge point of con convergence. And then we take the individual parts of immunization, the supply chain, how can it contribute beyond immunization? The demand side work, how can it do more than uh, you know, the quality of care, interpersonal communication and so on. And my final point, just to you know, really stress that what Irene said about resource allocation, in addition to Seth's comments on allocative efficiency, a lot of the resource decisions are being made at sub-national level. A lot of these countries are highly decentralized. And, and, and I think one thing that we might not have done enough is gone to the sub-national level uh, for advocacy for resource mobilization. Uh, polio is, was eradicated in a country like India because it had the commitment of the district magistrates in the various districts. And that's, that's the kind of granularity and, and engagement we need to... Thank pursue. you. So let's come back to COVID. I want to say a couple of things, and then I'm going to ask Seth to, to uh, answer Carl's question. I mean, we, in the last few days, we've seemed to have crossed a couple of thresholds. Um, people are talking a lot less about the containability of this and much more about this is globalizing and we're moving into a strategy of mitigation. Um, the sudden outbreaks in Iran and Italy, uh, Korea, just in the last several days, the geographic spread within China itself, prisons, a couple of hospitals under lockdown in Beijing, um, that we're getting out of of, of the ability to do um, uh, case isolation, case investigation, the scale of this is, is moving ahead. We have, you know, reports that the U.S., uh, that the U.S. administration is preparing an emergency supplemental to present to Congress, which is a signal 
of something very important happening there. We see the economic, the projected economic consequences being tabulated in very new ways. Um, the G20 finance ministers issued uh, a, uh, the IMF issued a pretty harrowing estimation earlier today. And then we see what I think Carl's referencing, which is modelers at the Imperial College, at Harvard, and elsewhere coming forward and putting, putting out, well, this is, this is what we might imagine in terms of spread, a pattern of globalization and what that may mean. So Seth, how, given where we are today, how should we be thinking about what lies ahead in this still very uncertain period? So first of all, uh, you know, modeler can say whatever they want about what percent of the population is gonna get infected. We just don't know. We don't understand enough about the epidemiology yet. There are differential mortality rates now in China and Wuhan than there are in countries outside. We don't understand that. Is that a case reporting issue? So we need a lot more information. We also don't fully understand the virus. Are you fully transmissible during an asymptomatic phase? Is that true for everybody? Is it a subset of people? We don't know if there's seasonality, which would be a very important point. Um, and we don't know the spread in tropical regions. Now, given all of that, the more I learn, the more worried I am about this because of the reasons that Stephen has talked about. So on the best case scenario, what you want is time to hold it down so we can develop countermeasures. As you know, there are a series of drug developments that are going on. There's clinical trials that have been started of existing drugs that could be ready to go. No idea whether they work or not. They've been used in compassionate settings. But again, until we do controlled studies, we won't know. Vaccines were launched within a few weeks of of having the um, actual knowing what the, the, the genetics of the organism were, those are started. Um, there's a lot more work going on on vaccines. The interesting question there is how far could you accelerate that work if this truly is a global pandemic? And we don't know the answer to that. We have to keep in mind though that for Ebola, we were all you know, guns roaring, and it took us five years to get a licensed product. Although we did a clinical trial quite quickly, the regulatory agency stepped forward, Merck heroically, um, you know, worked to try to make the vaccine available. You know, could we do it in a faster time? There's a lot of people who think doing an adaptive trial design, moving forward with, you know, everything in parallel, you could move it. But the other problem is some of the approaches that are being used now for vaccine development are attractive because they're quick, but they're novel. They haven't been in humans, so the regulatory agencies are going to ask questions about the safety, about the distribution. So, you know, are we better off with an existing technology that might take a little bit longer, but then is easier from a regulatory point of view, or are we better off with um, a new technology that might take longer from a regulatory point of view? Well. If this is the big one, we should be running those in parallel. So at the end, where do I think we should be is we should be driving forward as if this is the big one, as if those numbers are as bad as they are, but we try to control it as much as we can so that we can get the interventions out there. The biggest problem is if this ends up peaking like this, then all of the health system you know, will be overwhelmed with the need for intensive care, ventilators, all of those other issues. Whereas if you can flatten it out and, and do it over time, you have bigger chance for other interventions to be there, but you also allow the health system to take the brunt um, over, a, over a long time period. If this, is, if this becomes the big one, as you, 
as you described it, and we have a vaccine come online in a year and a half or two years, what's going to be the biggest constraint in your estimation of actually getting that produced and in the hands of people? Well, the good news, I mean, I showed you the data. We know how to get vaccines out. I think that's the alliance is really good at that. The scary part, though, is let's just say this vaccine is now produced in the U.S. Are we going to make it available in other countries before we vaccinate the 350 million people in the U.S.? If it's in the EU, it's going to be the same issue. But let's say we now do it, we produce it in India for developing countries. Well, if India's got a, 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 a big epidemic of COVID, are they going to make it available? Are they going to vaccinate their 1.3 billion people? So the thing we have to think about now that's different is how do we produce vaccines specifically for the developing world if this is a truly global epidemic? And that's the conversations that we haven't had before. It was very different for, for Ebola, where there was no market, and so the issue was how do we pay for it to be produced, and Merck is producing it. They may eventually move it to a developing country manufacturer, but you know, they're producing that. But in this, which there'll be unrestricted demand, um, it's going to be a real challenge, and I think that's what we have to think about. Do you want me to use this? <laughs> I think that's the subtle hint he's given you. Okay. Um, Thank you. Others like to weigh in on the COVID response? Irene? No, just I would certainly agree with, with Seth. I mean, there's so much about this we don't know, right, which is one of the biggest issues we have. So it could, it could go in any way. That said, I think a lot of the investments that we have been making in laboratory systems and in referral systems and in information systems are all extraordinarily important now. And that's where we can continue to put some resources. And one of the things that we're starting to do now is put some resources into, can we beef up the labs? Can we make sure there's good infection prevention control practices in place? Is there good information out for, even though that information is changing dramatically as we move forward? And that's things that we can do now to try to mitigate the spread as much as possible. Can I just mention one other thing, which is, um, we didn't talk about this innovation, but it's, I think, quite important, which is innovative financing. Mm -hmm. And so one of the questions, we, we have already used our IFM, that's the Innovative Financing Facility for Immunization. The U.S. doesn't um, engage in this because the U.S. does an annual budget process. But for countries that can do multi-year processes, countries have um, given us guarantees out a long time. And with those, we can go to the market and, and, and raise money. And we immunized 80 million children before we had the money from donors. It's a really exciting mechanism. We have already done one um, uh, IFM round for CEPI to help them um, help a donor spread out its, in, in, its innovation. This would be, for example, something that could be done if we had to come up with a very large amount of money quickly to produce vaccines, to finance research, if we could get governments to make a long-term commitment, because no government has billions of dollars just sitting you know, there with nothing to do. Um, uh, we could, though, get them to guarantee out and then raise that money and use it for this. So these are other innovations that we have to think about um, in these unprecedented times. So there's going to be a financing. If, if, if we get to the point where we're trying to produce 300 million or 500 million doses, there's going to be all the distribution and equity issues. Yeah, but it, it, we may be talking about 15 billion doses if we're right. talking about the whole world. Right. Right. Two-dose vaccine is a whole different ball game than it is, you know, hundreds of millions, okay. <laughs> and that's, that, that raises all sorts of manufacturing capacity issues as well as the financing 
and we're nowhere near that. Uh, I'm gonna, we're getting to the, to the end of the uh, uh, time here. Robin, any last remarks? There's one know? thing that I forgot to say, where I, was, I meant to say in my opening presentation is, with Gavi 5.0, there's another fantastic opportunity is because the immunization agenda 2030 is being developed at the same time. This has not happened to my knowledge in the past. It's happened, uh, development of Gavi's strategy and the global vaccine action plan happened at different times and the, and the predecessors of each happened at different times as well. So what we're working together with, with, with Seth's team, with WHO, with all the, uh, the partners in the room is an alignment because obviously the IA2030 is going to address a lot of the middle-income country issues that, that we are talking about, and even high-income country issues as well. And I think uh, you know, identi uh, you know, identifying what uh, common monitoring and evaluation mechanisms are and, and so on. And, and basically the focus of both these, uh, these strategic vision documents, if you like, are focusing on, 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 on similar things, zero-dose children, equity, uh, horizontal approaches and, and, and all the things that we've discussed. Sustainability. Thank you. Catherine, the last word. Oh my goodness. <laughs> uh, just, to, just to reinforce that, you know, the, it, I think the, uh, the U.S. involvement in this alliance has been very strong since the beginning and uh, as this conversation has I think really highlighted that uh, involvement both at the alliance and partnership level and through sustained uh, long-term involvement at the community level is fundamental to the preparation and uh, work that is needed to address the importance of improving immunization, but also being ready to address these kinds of emergencies that we've just been talking about. Thank you. Um, I want to again thank Michaela Simoneau for all her uh, work in putting this all together, and to Natasha Villamori and the Gavi office here in town for all the support they provided us. And please join me in thanking our speakers. <laughs>